Well, today we're reading scriptures from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 to verse 36. If you uh, need a Bible and don't have one with you, uh, I'd invite you just to simply raise your hand. And there are ushers right at the door who have copies of scripture in their hand that they would like to get to you. So please just raise your hand right now, and they will bring it right to you where you are in your seat. If you are using a church Bible, then you will find the passage for today on uh, page 212. In the church Bibles, it's on page 212, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 to verse 36. Hear now what Holy Scripture says. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of Yahweh, for the men treated the offering of Yahweh with contempt. Samuel was ministering before Yahweh, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Alkanah and his wife and say, May Yahweh give you children by this woman for the petition that she asked of Yahweh. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, Yahweh visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of Yahweh. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear of the people of Yahweh spreading about. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him, but if someone sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of Yahweh to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with Yahweh and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father 
all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh, God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now, Yahweh declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind, I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you, our God, creator of the ends of the earth and of all of our universe, we thank you, Lord, that you have made this world and that we can know you. We thank you that you have a kingdom and your desire is to establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, There will be no temple and there will be no son for your presence will be with us and you will be our son. And you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will worship you forever forever and ever saying worthy is the lamb who is slain. Lord God, we thank you that we can dwell in your presence. We have the hope that we will do this for eternity in perfect justice with no sorrow or pain. But Lord God, even now as we desire to worship, there is corruption all around us. Help us, Lord, to see and understand how we can offer to you pure worship, even amongst the wrongs and corruptions that can afflict us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's start our time off with a little word association, okay? Three cities. What comes to mind? Pompeii, Chernobyl, Nagasaki. When I think of these three cities, I 
think of three, these three cities, I think of disaster. Massive volcano, horrible nuclear explosion, and a massive bomb. Utter devastation and defilement. We've been following the story of a, a godly woman, Hannah, a woman who was overlooked by others. She was barren, and many people thought she was cursed by God. But God blessed her with a son that she gave back to the Lord to serve at his temple, at his tabernacle, where his presence dwelt with his people in Shiloh. Pompeii, Chernobyl, Nagasaki, Shiloh. Shiloh, at this time in the history of Israel, was a wretched spiritual disaster. And little boy Samuel comes as an apprentice to help minister the sacrifices of God in an environment of horrible systemic injustice and abuses. How was God going to restore the pure worship that he desired from his people when it was so defiled? This is what we're going to learn from 1 Samuel chapter 2 today. And as we see the way that God does restore pure worship to his holy temple, it'll allow us to ask a question of ourselves today, what is the pure worship that God desires from us? So how bad was it really? I'm setting this up as like an absolute utter disaster. How bad was it really? Well, remember two weeks ago when the priest Eli slanderously and wrongfully called Hannah, this godly woman, uh, a worthless woman, she a daughter of Belial, an idol worshiper who deserved to be purged from the earth. He was wrong when he did that. But the narrator looks at Eli's own sons and calls them sons of Belial. Worthless men. So wretched that they deserve to be purged from the face of the earth. They were priests, and the law required specific practices about offerings that were made for sacrifices. And these sacrifices, when they were offered to God, uh, they would atone for their sins so that they could be forgiven, and that worshipers could know that they stood righteous and acceptable before a holy God. It was the job of the priests to minister these sacrifices. But the priests at Shiloh, Hophni and Phinehas, took the worship that was meant for God and reoriented it completely around themselves. They took the worship that was meant for God and reoriented it completely around themselves. Let me show you how. So when an offering was being roasted, there were stipulations in the law that designated that portions of this meat sacrifice would be cut off and given to the priest so he could eat as his inheritance, his portion, his due for the work that he did. Leviticus 7, 28 to 36, 
In Deuteronomy 18, verse 1 8, specified the exact cuts of the meat that were given to the priests. But Hophni and Phinehas were not content with the portions that God had for them, they wanted the best. So whether by fork or by force, they'd get what they'd want. They abused their authority to their own advantage. And specifically, you see that they wanted the fat portions. They wanted uh, the raw meat before it was roasted, and the fat portions, as someone who knows like a good Wagyu steak, that's the best portion of the meat. But worship was supposed to be oriented around God, and if this offering was being burnt and sacrificed to the Lord, the best portion was not for the worshiper to go and feast on after it's been roasted. It wasn't a portion for the priest as his designation for a service. The best portion was meant for God. Hophni and Phinehas coveted what belonged to the Lord. And this was not a benign, just like a savory tooth that they had, that they just specifically, they knew what this meant. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 22 to verse 27, the um, order of sacrifice specifically says that if anyone eats the fat portions of the offering, it came with capital punishment. It was punishable by death. These priests knew that. And they knowingly took it anyway. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. These men were covetous. They were blasphemous. They were abusive. And they were perverted. Priests were in supposed to teach the people the difference between the the holy and the unholy, the common and the sacred. They themselves were supposed to be shining examples of the holiness of God. And these perverted priests took it upon themselves to satisfy their carnal pleasures with the woman who served at the holy temple. And the people saw it, and they didn't like it. They complained to their father, Eli. And Eli tried to rebuke them. He says, oh, it's not a good report that I hear. Kind of ironic that he's hearing the report when his job was actually to be the guard or the sentry, the watchman in the temple. And he can't, the watchman can't see what's happening. It's not a good report that I hear. He essentially says, what you guys are doing is indefensible. You know, if you sin against a man, you can appeal to a greater authority to God. But if you sin against God, what other authority is to appeal to? What you're doing is indefensible. But his critique kind of rings pretty hollow. Because, as you may have noticed, when we read the passage, he says something about their sexual perversion, but he says nothing about their blasphemous and covetousness and abusive scorn and contempt of God's offering. Why? Because he's complicit. He is literally 
eating from their table of corruption. How bad was it? These abusive, covetous, blasphemous, perverted hypocrites have completely reoriented the pure worship of God around themselves. It was a disaster. And if that's what things were like, if that's how bad it was, what hope did these worshipers have for change? What hope do these worshipers have? Now, the narrator and the writer of Scripture deliberately organizes this passage as a contrast. It describes the perversion of Hophni and Phinehas, but then it shows the humility and godliness of Samuel. And then it shows more perversion, but then the godliness of Samuel. It's a deliberately a contrast. Samuel, Hophni and Phinehas scorned the offerings of God, but Samuel ministered in priestly garments before the presence of God. Hophni and Phinehas have no favor with the people and no favor in God, but Samuel grew in favor with God and with man. Now, the Jewish historian, ancient historian Josephus, uh, holds in his tradition that Samuel was likely around 12 years old at this time. Imagine Samuel, right? He's taken a Nazarite vow, so he's got pretty long hair at 12 years old. And his mom comes up once a year to give him a new robe to fit over his ephod. So when mom comes up, long hair, robe that's like a little too high in the wrists, a little too snug on the shoulders, amidst this systemic injustice and abuse that's all around him, with men who know how to yield, wield their power and hold on to it, this little like kid who hasn't finished puberty, that's their hope? Really? God doesn't look at power and God doesn't look at people the way you and I look at power and look at people. When things are wrong and we need change, we normally look for what we can easily look at. A resume for a job with consistent deliverables and strong references. A leader with personality that draws a large crowd. A potential spouse with family pedigree, financial stability. We look for what we can look at. Samuel had to learn this lesson when he became an adult himself. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This was Samuel's family. God chose what no one else would chose to subvert abused power. 
God chose Hannah, a once barren woman who seemed to others just to be cursed. But really, she was a humble, servant-hearted woman of grace who labored on her knees in prayer and with her knitting needles in compassion. That's what he needed for change. And you might not feel like you have a lot to offer. You're so young that you don't even have a driver's license. People make decisions for you, whether you're at school or you're at home or you're at your part-time job. And you see, like, there's lots of bad stuff happening all around me, but I'm like just, just a fish swimming upstream and there's a tidal wave coming against me. What can I do? You may feel like you're getting older in age. You're of limited mobility. You don't see people that often. You may feel like you've just, your arms are full with all these kids and all these diapers and I have no energy. Oaks grow from acorns. There is towering, immense power in ordinary, everyday godliness. And when God wants to bring change, he looks to the acorn. God can use you to bring change through a godly, gentle, quiet, humble heart. Choose simple obedience in the midst of compromised times like Hannah's husband, Elkanah. Choose faithful prayer in the midst of burdened desperation like Hannah. Choose holy living in the midst of wretched corruption like Samuel. That's true power. That's the leaven that God uses to be able to make the whole lump grow and expand. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Well, if this was their hope, this little scrawny, long-haired boy, how is God actually going to bring change? How would restoration actually come? When I was in university, uh, I was an RA. Got a scholarship for it, resident assistance. My job was pretty much just like enforcing the code of conduct on the dorm. And at the end of the year, when final exams were done, I might have finished my finals on like the first day of exams, but I had to wait until the complete end when all the students were gone because it was my responsibility when students left to do what we called a white glove checkout and make sure that they pulled out all the personal belongings from the dorm and cleaned it up to code, and if not, they would get a fine. But there was this kind of unwritten rule amongst RAs and the students in the dorm. Um, if you wanted to get home early for a price, just pull out your personal belongings and because the RAs have to stay to the end, They'll make sure that it's up to code. And that seemed like a great deal. I heard other people doing it. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this too. And I did. And I forgot how messy my dorm is like an early 20-year-old man was and how messy a lot of young male living spaces are. And I made a lot of money, but I'm not sure it was worth it. 
cleanups are really messy. God needed to clean up his defiled house. And in order to do so, it was going to get really messy. God sends this prophet, a man of God, and he has this strong message of judgment against Eli and his sons. Ironically, Eli tells his boys, Hophni and Phinehas, that what they are doing is indefensible. But now it flips right on its head and falls on him. The prophet starts off by reminding Eli of the immense privileges that he has as a priest. Look at it with me in verse 27. Thus says Yahweh, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense to wear ephod before me? I gave the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. The prophet reminded him, this is a privileged position that you have. I designated the tribe of Levi from Aaron, Moses' brother, and all of Aaron's descendants from the four houses that followed him, Abihu and Nahab and Ithamar and Eleazar, all of their sons from these four houses, from Aaron's clan and Levi, you had the unique privilege. You wouldn't have a land offering, but you would have the presence of the Lord. You would go into the Holy of Holies, that very place in the Ark of the Covenant, and no other tribe would get this. I chose you. But then he says, why do you honor your sons? Above me. Indefensible. Yeah, God would bring restoration to his house. But that restoration would start first with a purging. And then after purging the disease, it would then be able to have a purifying. Eli's house would be purged. There's some like poetic patterns that he has that seems like he's like, how many, what is he, how many things is he talking about here? The purging was essentially two things. First, the strength of Eli's house would be purged. No one in their family from their line would live to old age anymore. And that's not bad just because of the loss of life. That's bad because of the loss of social status. Having no elders shattered their ability to be able to hold positions of authority in Israel. But that was true justice because they abused their authority. And as a sign to authenticate this judgment, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would both die in one day. That would happen just in chapter 4, where Eli himself would die as well. The second part of the purging is that anyone who was left in their family, who had the luxury that they lived on from their abuses, they fattened themselves up, all those people who would be left would no longer live under the fat of abuse. They would starve and be dependent on others. And if you remember, 
This is the exact same thing that Hannah prophesied in her prayer in chapter 2. He sa- she said in chapter 2, verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And now, Eli's family, who fattened themselves on God's offerings, would now be dependent on just a morsel of bread from others. The strength of their house would be purged. The authority and status of their house would be purged. But then, God would purify his house. The strength of Eli's house would be purged, and the priesthood of God's house would be purified. Rather than an abusive, covetous, blasphemous, perverted, hypocritical priests, God promised, look at it with me, in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. A faithful priest who would minister before an anointed king. This is the answer. How would God restore pure worship when it was so defiled? A faithful priest and a just king. These roles are really important to understand how worship operates. A uh, a priest was the person who mediated between God a man in between God. The sinful worshipers would come, give an offering, the priest would present this to the Lord, and then bless that person as his sin is atoned for and forgiven. The priest was a mediator. Amongst other things as well, the king was a representative. The king was the one that the law required who had to have his own handwritten copy of the Mosaic law. And the priest had to then observe and see that handwritten copy to make sure that it was uh, valid according to what God first showed Moses. And the king was supposed to read of that law every day and then live that. He was kind of this archetype. The king was to live righteously because he operated as a head. Like the brain and the head in your body kind of stands, when you see a driver's license, it stands for the whole uh, body. When you see a driver's license, they don't take a picture of your hands or your hips or your knees, because those could be anyone. The head represents the whole. And the king was meant to be righteous so that he would stand as a representative for the people before God. And when you had a faithful priest and a righteous king, the people would be at peace before the Lord and they could worship, offer the pure worship that God desired and they would enjoy the shalom, the blessing of having covenant with God. Within three generations, all of these predictions of the prophet came to pass. You might have additional thought and was like, well, oh, Samuel, Samuel's the priest. Well, no, actually. The actual priest who serves before the anointed king is a man named Zadok. And Zadok ministers before King David and then his father, Solomon. And at that time, this was the golden age of Israel. Borders expanded, land at peace, 
blessing abounding, cups overflowing, the face of God shining because of a faithful priest and a just king. But just one generation after Zadok and Solomon, everything unraveled again. By that time, God's tabernacle was no longer in Shiloh. It was in Jerusalem. But generations after more wretched priests and more unjust kings, God sent the prophet Jeremiah. And he warned them that if you don't repent, I will make the temple in Jerusalem like Shiloh. And they didn't repent. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and burned it to the ground. And they were sent off into exile again. Generation after generations, these priests and these kings failed. Enter the eternal priest and the true righteous king, Jesus Christ. Under the new covenant of Christ, we have a great high priest who has offered a sacrifice of his own life once and for all. We have a wise king whose rule is just and is eternal. Friend, you can know that you stand before God righteous and accepted today because Christ is your mediator who offers forgiveness of sin. Christ is the representative who is without any blemish and represents us before God. The only way you can have peace with God is through faith in this priest and king. Friend, choose today to believe in his atoning sacrifice and his justice and righteousness and you can rest assured that you will be forgiven and accepted before a holy God. You can know that you stand right by faith in Christ. But how can you know if you're offering pure worship to him? Anyone with kids knows that children generally prefer bland foods. Ask my mom and she would say, that's right up my alley. I loved mac and cheese, cheese whiz, anything carbs and dairy just like gobbled it up. But over time, um, your palate can grow and your palate can mature. I grew up on uh, cheese and crackers, but now I'm, a, I'm married a Korean and I love uh, kimchi and kalbi. Over time, your palate can grow and it can mature. A lot of people look at our society and culture today and think the same thing about our collective experience towards religion. We look at religion and it's become this distasteful, bland, like expression for a previous generation. And we've grown past it, like a child moving from mashed foods to meats. And you think, you hear us talking about today offering pure worship to God, and your thought is just like, 
can't we worship in our own way? Why do we need some institutionalized organization with authority figures regulating how we practice our own spiritual experiences? Why do we even need to talk about pure worship? Can't anyone offer their own worship or be content with none at all? Maybe you're a professing Christian. Maybe you really value the morals that your parents have raised you with. You appreciate the ideas of peace that comes for forgiveness and the comfort of knowing that there's an all-knowing God who has your best interest in mind. But beyond that, beyond maybe even occasionally going to church on Sunday, the idea of worship beyond the duties or the practices that simply just gives you your own peace of mind Worship is compartmentalized for you. And uh, if you're even concerned that if you practiced it publicly, you'd be con- see your friends or coworkers might view you as intolerant. Maybe on the other hand, you're, you're actually curious about Jesus. You want to learn more about Christianity, but you don't consider yourself like a religious person. You see that there's got to be something more than just getting rich and retiring. And you'll take wisdom from any source, whether it be Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Buddha or Muhammad or Jesus. But you're not getting interested in getting into organized practices because you want freedom. You want a sense of meaning in life that exists outside of yourself, but you want to get it on your own terms. What is worship really? At its most essential form, worship is simply ascribing or celebrating worth. We ascribe worth to the things that we think are most excellent. That can be your aspirations for a certain physique or body image. That can be your desire to be able to get a certain salary your, your pursuit of a certain kind of family unit, the approval that you want from your in-laws. Worship is just celebrating worth. When we worship, what it looks like is offering our highest allegiance and our deepest affections because we believe it will yield for us the greatest joy. That's why we worship. If you want enough of Jesus just so you can have better mental health but it doesn't influence your life from Monday to Saturday or you want just enough Jesus to be able to define and self-actualize your experience of transcendence on your own terms then you have something in common with Hophni and Phineas. You've reoriented worship completely around yourself. Pure Christian worship is held in orbit by the supreme gravity of God's unmatched glories and excellencies. 
There is nothing of greater worth than him. And because he is Lord of all of my life, every part of my life is oriented around expressing his magnificence. There's nothing of greater worth than him. So what is the kind of pure worship that our priest and our king requires of us? Christian worship demands a whole life offering. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friend, our priest gave all of himself as an atoning sacrifice so that we could be right by him, before him, by grace, through faith. He is due your highest allegiance and your deepest affections. Christian worship demands everything. And when we are caught under the gravity and orbiting around God and his excellencies, we will see ourselves reoriented around the way that we treat Christian practices, the way that we interact with one another. Religious practices won't just be another means of me just boasting in my own self-worth and getting approval from others. Christian practices will be from a heart of humble, meek, and low righteousness. You won't pretentiously just be desiring to be seen by others. You'll know, as Matthew 6, verse 4 says, your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. We won't be concerned about how we measure up to others. In fact, we'll be liberated from our sense of trying to fit in with others so that we can focus on actually serving others. Because pure worship isn't just what we offer to God, but if when we offer ourselves to God and we're orbiting around him, our heart will share what God's heart is. And God's heart is mercy to those who are overlooked and needy and vulnerable. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. James 1, 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friend, you have a faithful high priest and a just king. God is due our highest allegiance, our deepest affection, and it does yield inexpressible joy. Pure worship is all of your life. It will be seen in humility and expressed in mercy. May God make us pure worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy towards us, that when we are dead in our sins, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. And for by grace, we've been saved through faith. 
Thank you that because we have a mediator who always stands to make intercession for us, we can know assuredly that all of our sins are completely forgiven, past, present, and future. Thank you that we have a, high, a king like Jesus Christ who is perfectly righteous and without any blemish. We can know that he represents us before him and that we are counted as righteous in him. So Lord God, may we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and rose again. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.